Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the life of Jacob with James Jordan, and here he'll be discussing the food theme in the Joseph narrative. Before we jump in, do be sure to check out those show notes. There's a link there to our YouTube page where we post weekly videos on Bible, liturgy, culture, as well as other links where you can find us online. With that, we really hope that you enjoy this episode. And here is James Jordan discussing the food theme in the Joseph narrative. We'll continue in our studies in the life of Jacob and our introduction to the Joseph narrative. And we'll begin here to consider some of the important themes in the Joseph narrative. I think it's good to introduce these now. We were looking at several of them in the last hour, but that was more in terms of the structure of the book. Here, certain themes that are important to the narrative, if we look at them a little bit to start with, we'll be more alert to them as we go, and once we start going paragraph by paragraph. The first that I've got down here is food, because food, obviously, is a major theme in this story. Instances of it, of course, are right at the beginning in Joseph's dream, the first dream. He sees 12 sheaves of grain bow down to him. Then, of course, he sees 12 constellations as well, but it's the grain that we're focusing on here. Then, when he works for Potiphar... We're told that Potiphar left everything in Joseph's hand, and especially the food or the bread is mentioned. Potiphar did not know anything except the bread that Joseph served him. When Joseph is thrown into prison under Potiphar, of course we have a baker and a cupbearer who come before him. Then Joseph is put over all the food of Egypt, and he supervises all the grain. And then, of course, the important aspect of the story is the famine and this need for food that becomes important there. And of course, this runs all the way through the Bible. As sacramental Christians, we understand this. I think most of us grew up in a more Gnosticized kind of Christianity that said you learn doctrine and maybe the sacraments every now and then. Once you begin to realize that food is on virtually every page of the Bible, it's kind of like coming to believe in predestination. Once you see it, you see election everywhere. Once you see that food is important in the Bible, you see it everywhere. God is teaching people how to eat, starting in the garden and all the way down to the tree of life at the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, food is everywhere. It's what all the problems in the wilderness were about. God was teaching them how to eat. And they didn't want to eat what God gave them, and they didn't want to eat it the way God gave them to eat. Being taught to eat is catechizing. We don't understand it. If we did, we'd all believe in paedo communion. Because you teach your children to eat. Blake Purcell was saying this at our conference last week, made an excellent point. Food is catechism. The Passover was catechism. It's catechism without anything else. Eat your broccoli. I don't like broccoli. Yeah, you do. Eat it. You're catechizing. You make your children learn to eat certain things and make them sit at the table and wait till the blessing before they start to eat and everything else. Eating is catechizing, and it's catechizing in the Bible. God catechized Israel 40 years in the wilderness, teaching them how to eat and what to eat. 
And he gave them all kinds of rules afterwards about what to eat and how to eat it and how to sacrifice it. And hunger or food or festival times or sacrificial meals or sacramental meals are all the way through the Bible. All the way through. I don't think there's a book of the Bible that doesn't have it. What does Ecclesiastes say? It says you can't understand life. Life doesn't make any sense. You suffer a lot and then one day you die. But, hey, every now and then, eat, drink, and be merry. Because that's a gift that God gives you in the midst of life. Now, later on, that's perverted. You know, what does the man say in Luke? He says, I have gathered up all this stuff in my barn so I can eat, drink, and be merry. That's the opposite of what Solomon says. Solomon says, I don't have anything. I don't understand anything. Nothing makes any sense. But, hey, there are these festivals. And God invites me to the festival and says, eat, drink, and be merry because that's a gift that God has given to men in the midst of all the confusion of life. Food, it's everywhere. And it's really important here. Because God gives food. We don't give it. And that starts in the Garden of Eden. What's it all about? Right in the Garden of Eden. What does it say? In Genesis chapter 1, before we even get to the Garden of Eden, God blessed them on the fifth day and says, Be fruitful and multiply. Well, that wasn't it. On the sixth day, what did He say to them? God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and take over everything. And then He says, Behold, I've given you food. Every plant yielding seed that's on the surface of the earth and every tree that has a fruit yielding seed is food for you and it's food for every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth, all the creeps, which has life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. Of all the things that might have been said, this is what he says. Hey, I've made you. You're in charge of everything. I'm giving you food. And we think, oh, well, we'll have the Lord's Supper four times a year. We're not sure what it means. Food isn't that important. No, food's everywhere. Food's real important. Then, of course, he plants his garden. Out of the ground, the Lord God calls to grow every tree that's pleasing to the sight and good for food. Food. And then Eve sees a tree. This tree, special tree. She says, hey, it's good for food. It's a delight to the eyes. She's absolutely right. It was good for food. And it was a delight for the eyes. And it's desirable to make you wise. Well, she's right about that too. She just wasn't supposed to do it yet. But it's food. And then God says, did you eat these things I tell you not to eat from? That's the question. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, what you do, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So what does he say to the serpent? He says, thus you will eat. What does he say to the man? Cursed is the ground with reference to you. The ground isn't cursed with reference to anybody else. Animals don't have any problem with the ground. It's cursed with reference to us. Thorns and thistles, by the sweat of your face, you will eat food. Food. Hey, God gives food. God supervises food. And what we see here is that God restores food to sinners. He could have said, well, too bad for you, you're going to starve your death. And that's it. No, he restores food to us. He restores food to Adam. Maybe it's going to be a little bit harder to eat from now on, but I'm still giving you some food. He restores food to those who don't deserve it. Certainly that's true in the wilderness. It's true here as well. He gives us back food after we had rejected him and had to be removed from Eden. But there's still some food outside. Food gives you life. If you don't eat food, you die. Food is dead. Everything you eat is dead. You want to eat a banana? You pull it off a tree 
you separate it from its life. The banana is now going to start to rot. You've got a couple of days to eat it, and after that, maybe one more day, and after that, you better cook it, because after that, you got to throw it out, because you pull it off of the tree. Now it's dead. You killed it. What you eat is dead. Tomatoes, they're dead. All a cow and sheep and chicken you eat, it's all dead. This yogurt maybe isn't always dead. But that's about it. Everything else we eat is dead. So we eat this dead stuff, and it keeps us alive. Now, does that make any sense? No, it makes no sense. It makes no sense that we're sustained in life by eating dead stuff. I mean, it would be different if we could go over to a tree and nurse on it. Or to some animal, suck its blood out. Then we would be getting life. That's what vampirism is. That's actually forbidden. Don't drink the blood. Everything you eat has to be dead. You have to kill it first. There are all these rules about that. Deuteronomy 12, other places, this is how you kill it. You kill it with a knife. You pour its blood out. You do this. you got to kill it. Then you can eat it. It's really mainly true of animals, but see, it's also true of vegetables as well. It's all dead. But how is it that we eat dead stuff, and eating dead stuff keeps us alive? Well, the only answer to that is that the Holy Spirit works with that dead stuff to give us life. So the life does not come from food as such. Food is the medium by which the Spirit gives us life. You don't have food, you won't have life. But food by itself is dead. There's no reason why you put it in here. It ought to just all come out the other end. It shouldn't do anything for you. It's not the food that is sustaining us in life. It's that the Spirit works through dead food to give us life. That's exactly the same thing that happens today. A, this wine and bread are dead. But the Holy Spirit is going to work through these things to give us new kingdom life. And Jesus Christ is dead on the cross. And it's his death we eat. It's his death we show forth. But God works through that death to give us life. He died that we might live. These things died that we might live. But it's the Spirit who works through those dead things to give us life. And that's true every time you eat anything. And it's true in a special new creation way. That keeps you alive in the old creation sense. It keeps your flesh alive. Ordinary food, when you leave here this morning and go home to lunch, ordinary food keeps your flesh alive. It keeps you alive in this first creation down here. But this gives us new creation life. And when we have resurrection bodies, then everything we eat will be given us new creation life. I imagine we'll still eat. Jesus ate in his resurrection body, didn't he? Ate a fish. I think we'll still be eating. hope so. hate to give that up. But it has to be something better. But here, this gives us new creation life. Ordinary food is sustaining us in the old creation. Sacramental food is giving us new creation life. It's a mystery, but it's no more mysterious than everything else you eat. It's a mystery that you can eat a dead chicken, and the Holy Spirit works with that to keep you alive. It's a mystery that we can eat bread and wine, and the Holy Spirit works with that to give us Jesus and give us new life. But he does. So food is a big deal in the Bible, and that's some of the theology of food. And there's one other aspect of the theology of food that is important in Joseph, 
and it's a theme that starts here and will continue through the Bible, and that is that God provides food through kings. God provides food through kings. And of course, by kings we mean those who have rule and supervision over things. Not children, not servants. Not those who are under authority, but those who have some authority. And Joseph is the example here. Joseph is right under Pharaoh, but it's obviously Pharaoh's job to provide food for these people. I know that being 20th century Christians and heirs of a free society, we don't think of the state as being responsible to provide food. But I hope to show you that there's a sense in which it is, and it's been something of a blessing that it hasn't had to be so, but inescapably winds up that there's a certain truth to that, and as to that, I'd like for us to turn our attention here. We can say, of course, that Jesus provides us food and he's our king. But beyond that, the fact that God gave these dreams to Pharaoh indicates that Pharaoh had some responsibility with respect to the feeding of his nation. And he delegates that responsibility to Joseph. But Joseph then, as an agent of the state, as a secretary of agriculture, has a responsibility to see to the feeding of this nation. And he does so by taxing the people at 20% for seven years and then selling stuff back to them. We'll have to look at the problems that come to our mind in connection with all these things as we get to it. But there's no doubt that he, as a political civil ruler, as a king, as the agent of the king, as the vice king, is in charge of the food in this society. Well, why don't we see this happening all through the Bible then? Why don't we see the kings of Israel providing food for everybody and that it's always the business of the government? Well, the answer is, in a mature and disciple society, many men are kings. And so the free market provides food for the most part. It's still normally the head of the household's job, the husband, the king, and the household, to provide the food. He's called what? A breadwinner because he provides the food. And so he's a small king who provides food for his children. Children can't provide food for themselves. Mothers and fathers do. Usually the father provides the food. Of course, when the baby is nursing, he's getting food from his mother. But we're talking in the sense of growing food and providing it. And you extend that in a disciple society when human beings are maturing and outgrowing childhood, and a lot of people are doing that, then many people are kings. And you have the free market, and so food is provided that way. Where such a mature society does not exist, however, it's proper for the civil ruler to provide for the poor, as we see Solomon and Nehemiah do, and the Bible talks about that. The poor are at the table of the king. Nehemiah, in particular, calls attention to that. If people can't take care of themselves, then it ultimately will fall to the king to do it. The more a society matures in godliness and discipline, the more kings there are and the less the ruler has to do in this area, which is a good thing. Diverse other kingly institutions arise, such as the diaconal arm of the church and charitable organizations. For a long time in our society, the government didn't have to take care of the poor at all. Because there were enough churches to do it, there were enough charitable organizations to do it, and people didn't go hungry. But when disasters happen, for whatever reason, 
ultimately it will fall back to the government to do it. And that's what happened during the Depression. Whatever brought the Depression on, doesn't matter. Once it's here, it's here. Stupid decisions shouldn't have been made, but now it's here. So what do we do? Well, lots of charitable organizations and churches took up a lot of slack, but it wasn't enough. In Joseph's day, the government took up the slack. The government took up the slack in the Depression and still does in certain parts of our society and other societies. Whether it does a good job or a bad is not the question here. We'd say it usually does a pretty bad job, but sometimes does a good job. We're just talking principles here. It's the principle is. It's a kingly function to provide food. God provides food in the beginning because he is a king. When Noah becomes a king, Noah plants a vineyard, and Noah provides food. The kings of Israel tend to supervise the food, especially for the poor. Pharaoh supervises the food. Jesus gives us food. And even in ordinary human societies, in times of disaster, or when there are a whole lot of people who are irresponsible and there's no place else to provide for them, the government falls in. It's better, of course, that there be lots of kings, lots of kings, fathers as kings providing for their families, diaconal arm of the church providing for people. That's much better than to have a pharaoh to have to do it all. Today, as godliness and discipline wane in our society, the civil ruler takes up the slack. That's not the new covenant ideal. It's a fact. It's the way it is. But the new covenant ideal is for nations to be discipled, for families to be discipled, for the state to wither away almost down to very little. When Christianity is strong in a society, the state withers down. You don't need anywhere near as much police force. You don't need as much welfare. But in an ungodly society, you're going to wind up for the sake of order, having strong police, and you're going to wind up having to provide things. And that's not the ideal. And what bothers us is that a hundred years ago, America was much better along those lines than she is now. And the reason is, you will always have the poor with you, says Jesus. You will always have people who need to be provided for. It is kingly to make those provisions. It is best that we all try to do those things and not have to fall back on the government. But sometimes you do. And that's another theme. So that's going to be an important theme here. I think if we don't understand that, it becomes hard. It's hard for strict libertarians to understand the Joseph story. I have read articles by the strict libertarians who say it was wicked of Joseph to tax the people to make them lay up corn, grain, and it was wicked of Joseph to sell it back to them and decapitalize it. I don't think that's the biblical position. We're not strict libertarians in that regard. The biblical position is more flexible. This was a major disaster. In major disasters, then the large power of the large government can be brought to bear. Ordinary situation, you wouldn't want that. So those are some thoughts on food. And I think we'll just stop there. I don't see why I should go on to another completely different topic. Let's just remind ourselves that God is king and God gives us food. And it's free food. We don't have to pay for this. God pays for it. He paid for it because he tells you to give 10% of your income to him. You have to do that. 
If you aren't given 10% of your income, you're stealing. So 10% of the money that you make belongs to God, and God takes that money and uses it to buy this bread and wine. So he's provided out of his money. He gives it to us, and it's free. That's just like the fact that Jesus provides us himself free of charge. We don't have to do anything to earn our salvation. We just receive it by faith. And we receive life from the death of Jesus Christ, and we will receive life from this bread and wine. Jesus is the greater Joseph. Joseph supervised the bread, and Joseph supervised the wine. Remember Joseph's silver cup is the sign that he's not only the baker of Egypt, but he's the cupbearer. And Jesus is greater than both of these. All the things that God the Father has laid up for us are going to be given to us. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.